Hi, um, I'm Porter Eldridge, and this is the Hillcrest Theatre Podcast. Today we'll be talking about Prince Caspian, as well as other Narnia books that are preceding it. And Mr. Long is here to talk about those things with me. Hey. All right, do you want to start with world building stuff, going back to the magician's nephew, or? Um, yeah, well, it's, it's, it's interesting that we're going to be doing this play that is kind of like mid series. It's kind of like a sequel um, without having done the stuff that comes before it. Um, but uh, I figure that the, the big work that you need to know for this one to make sense is the line, the witch in the wardrobe. And I figure that lots of people know that. Um, and if they don't, there are a couple of things you need to know from that, but this one kind of works as its own story inside of it. Um, the line, the witch in the wardrobe kind of gets you to know the characters, the, the four main characters a little bit better, but, um, I think this one works as a standalone. The the series, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, um, is funky because it, it there's there's there are seven books, and if you put them in order chronologically of like how the story happens, it actually goes in a different order than when he wrote them and when they were first released. So Prince Caspian is like book four technically if you read them in order of like when they happened in the world of Narnia, but it's actually only the second book that he wrote. He wrote the land in which the wardrobe first and then Prince Caspian. So when this first came out, although the magician's nephew and the horse and his boy technically come before it chronologically, they weren't even written yet. And so audiences only knew the land, which in the wardrobe originally with this. And so I think, I think we'll be, we'll be good. Do you want to jump in and talk about the Pevensies, our four main children? Yeah, well, uh, they're interesting, as <laughs> as most uh, theatrical characters are. Uh, my, the thing that interests me the most about them is the, the kind of character differences they have. Um, and I think those things will come out as we go and look at it chapter by chapter. Those are kind of the things that I highlighted a lot, like the little... Um, revelations that C.S. Lewis gives us about each of their characters and particularly the differences between Peter and Susan, who are the two older ones and uh, Lucy and Edmund, who are the two younger ones. Um, there's a big, I mean, I guess I won't go into details, but the kind of a big plot point that happens at the end that I think he kind of foreshadows throughout about the differences between the two older ones and the two younger ones and, and how they interact uh, with the world of Narnia. Um, C.S. Lewis was um, a Christian philosopher. He was very interested in that kind of stuff. Lots of his other uh, writings and works are like Christian philosophy and, and centered around his relationship with uh, the Christian deity and, and um, they're not works of fiction. He does have some other ones, but uh, the Chronicles of Narnia kind of stand out to him. Like that's it there. It's not typical of his writing style and in, in other things. Um, and so it's, I, I think it's interesting because 
we've done lots of um, plays that have different backgrounds and we always research the histories of those and, and what was the author intending and stuff like that. But we haven't done very many, if any, like kind of Christian based um, works uh, that, that are meant to be uh, that are kind of focused specifically around the, the Christian uh, theology and uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, although it's not teaching any Christian dogma or, or things like that, it is based or centered around uh, the idea of a Christ figure in, in Christian history. And so I've been studying uh, a lot of that as kind of like a historical thing. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, just to, to set up Prince Caspian before we get into the chapters, is definitely like a Christian allegory. Uh, it's kind of set up like as an allegory of, of the, the Christ centered books of the new Testament and Aslan kind of works as a stand-in for Christ and, and stuff like that. And so, you know, Aslan gets sacrificed or like crucified and then is resurrected. And like, so those things, if you know, like your Christian history on there, it kind of works as a parallel to that. And it was kind of a way that, that formed that story. But Prince Caspian is less like specifically about stories from the Bible. And it's, it's more, I, I think it centers more on, I mean, Aslan is also a character in, in Prince Caspian, but it doesn't tell any specific story about Jesus from the Bible. It kind of more shows human beings relationship to the Christian deity and how to deal with that after, like after the, the, the stuff we know from the Bible, we all have our normal lives. And so how do we navigate that relationship with the Christian deity? I think the normal person is kind of what Prince Caspian is, is a metaphor for. Um, but uh, so that's, that's really interesting. And I, and I think it's particularly relevant to people of all faiths because um, regardless of, of which deity or no deity um, that one may believe in. This is kind of about people's relationships to a deity figure, whatever that is, and how do you live your life with that faith or without it? And how does that affect the, like, the decisions and things that, that you do? And so that's what I kind of view Prince Caspian as, less as like a specific Christian allegory. Um, about the life of Christ and more about our relationship as human beings to that. Plus then it's like this crazy fantasy war story in the middle of it, which maybe is just an allegory for how crazy the world is. I don't know, but yeah. Or maybe it's just a children's book. See <laughs> uh, us Lewis, man. I don't know. I don't know. All right. I think we know everything that we need to know to dive right into this book. Let's get started with chapter one. Uh, we start off with the our four main children, Edmund, Peter, Lucy, and Susan Pevensey, in a train station at the end of their summer holiday, about to return to school, when they are magically transported back into the world of Narnia. Yeah, that is what happens. They're in London, so there's lots of cool British references and stuff in here. C.S. Lewis was British, too, so he lived in America for some time, but... I think. Um, uh, yeah, it starts with, there's a good, like one paragraph summary of the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe right at the beginning that he covers basically everything one would need to know in a paragraph. 
So I think that's good news. Um, and uh, yeah, they're just saying he gets right into the action. There's like no like, like um, exposition or stuff, except this one paragraph about the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And then he just like goes for it. Um, yeah, they, they get called quote unquote um, into the magical world for a second time. Uh, which I think is an interesting idea um, that will you'll go into, he'll get into it later. We'll see why, but the idea that they are pulled into this world when they're needed. Um, and then there's some parallels that I uh, feel in, in our lives sometimes that we get pulled into situations when we're needed and sometimes we're not ready and we weren't expecting them, but somebody needs us. And uh, so sometimes we get pulled into situations like that, that um, we weren't expecting or planning for. Uh, and I think that's cool. This, this uh, transition does happen in the stage version and it happens like live on stage um we start the play for like 60 seconds in a train station and then the whole station on stage in front of people like transforms into this narnian beach um so we've already been having design meetings uh we've had many this summer to figure out how to do that and other things and where we're going to make a, a full like train station set that has this magical transition that turns into the beach. It's going to be crazy. We are not, we've decided we're not going to skimp on the kind of magical, fantastical elements of, of this in our um, uh, production. And so there's going to be a lot of work and money and stuff gone into these um, fantasy elements. And this is going to be a big one because it's going to set up the magical world of Narnia for audiences and let them know like, Hey, we're, we're really doing this. So it's, it's going to be cool. I'm excited for that moment, particularly. That's super cool. Uh, you, you talked a little bit about like not being ready. <laughs> and I think that they also were not ready at all to be sucked back into Narnia, dreading going back to school. And I mean, that's also been demonstrated their not lack of readiness by the first chapter being them mostly wandering around the island looking for food and water. Yeah, that's what most of that chapter is. Um, I think it does get us for his, as much as his lack of like exposition before they get to Narnia, he does kind of take this first chapter to not have much happen. And, and I think trying to get us to know the characters a little bit more and how they've matured. Um, well, I am look, Porter, what I, what I find so fascinating about this story. Um, I kept thinking it when I watched the, film version that they made also um is just how weird it would be as a human being because what what happened the lion the witch in the wardrobe is these kids go they go into get sucked into narnia and then they become like the kings and queens of narnia right and then apparently they lived like they go into it just briefly at the end of the language of the wardrobe. They lived like an entire lifetime in Narnia and became like old Kings and Queens. And then accidentally walks back into like earth um, after living an entire life as like Kings and Queens. And then like no time had passed on earth or maybe like a couple minutes had. And uh, then they just went back to being these like kids 
in England for a year now. It's been a year. And they like can remember, they're like, oh, I remember our life in Narnia, but they're living like normal teenager lives in England. Um, and so in a sense, this is what I could not wrap my brain around. I was like, in a sense, they have the like life experience of like grown adults, but they're teenagers. And I just kept wondering, like, how does that manifest? Cause they're still like talking like teenagers and they make stupid mistakes like teenagers do. And I'm like, why are they making those stupid mistakes? They're like, technically they have 50 years of experience and emotional, like, do you know what I mean? And um, so I wasn't sure like what C.S. Lewis's approach was there because then there's also points I was noticing as I was reading Prince Caspian that it says like things started coming back to them. Like they had almost, when they came to America, like forgotten a lot of it. And I'm just not sure. And, and maybe I'll find out more as I look more specifically for these instances. I can't tell how much of it they like forgotten and got like erased and how much of it they still use as their experience. Because if they use a lot of it, if their brains and their bodies still use a lot of that experience, then I would feel like they'd be very mature, smart, and capable young people, which they kind of are. So um, I don't know. I just think that's kind of interesting that they're like 12 and 14 and 16 years old, but have lived an entire life of experience already. Yeah. I don't think that it's like their memories getting erased because they do talk about like there are still memories they still remember like the good old days of narnia and yeah. maybe some of that is because they are in narnia but it also talks about throughout the book how like they become more and more like their former selves when they were the kings and queens of narnia maybe it's just the opposite of that when they went back to britain where it's like as they're in london being children again they become less and less like the kings and queens and more and more like the children that they were even though they are still like slightly more mature because of like their experience in Narnia, that, that, that can even be seen. Like Lucy is a lot more mature than just like a nine-year-old, which is what she yeah. is. But they, I think that it, it is like a, a scale. Like they return to normalcy. And then as they get into Narnia, then it starts building back into kingliness. It's funky though. This You mentioned this chapter that like, it's mostly just them trying to figure out where they are and and how to get water first i guess it's so funny because when this the script that we're using was was adapted by a woman in uh, south carolina who runs a theater company that's really impressive all of them and we got permission to use their script and we actually had to to talk with c.s lewis's stepson um to get permission to do this because he owns the rights for all of that and is very specific about it. Um, anyways, when they, when she wrote this adaptation, he was very specific with her and he actually traveled to America to see their production and, and work with them on it. But he was very specific that they follow the book pretty closely and include the things that his step, his stepfather had included in there. Um, he didn't want, like he, obviously because of Hollywood, he signed away some of his like autonomy when they made the film and they made a lot of big changes in the film. And I don't think he was incredibly happy with that. Um, and so he was like, if you're doing the play, you got to do what's written in the book. And so there are things that I, that are in the script that I'm like, why is that here? Like that would have been, if I was making a play, I would have skipped over that part. Um, 
but not like, and so one of them is here at the beginning, like they arrive in Narnia and, and C.S. Lewis takes about half a page, maybe a page to, to just describe that the first thing they did is they took off their shoes and socks and went like running into the ocean, splashing around and in the stuff. And I was like, okay, when you're on stage, you're not going to have an ocean there. So that's obviously a part that we can just skip over. Um, but no, it's in the play. And it says, and they go and they, in the script, it's like, they go and they splash around in the water. And I'm like, cool, what water? Um, but uh, so we got to figure that out too. I think we're going to be using our, like, we now have a pit area in the auditorium. That's an actual pit orchestra pit that um, we might be using for some stuff like that. And um, there's just lots of things in here that the script does not help us at all, as far as like, making it easier for a, a, a live format. Um, so there's lots of, of obstacles that we're trying to solve um, design wise. And it's, it's fun. There's a lot of big obstacles, but that's one of them. Uh, so that's in the script. It stays just interesting. One of the other things that I, that I just noticed right at the beginning, how I talked about it kind of foreshadows the differences between Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy um, is he just takes the time to say like, uh, they all now waded back and went first across the smooth, wet sand and then up to the dry, crumbly sand that sticks to one's toes and began putting on their shoes and socks. Edmund and Lucy wanted to leave them behind and do their exploring with bare feet. But Susan said this would be a mad thing to do. Um, we might never find them again, she pointed out, and we shall want them if we're still here when night comes and it begins to be cold. And so like the sensibility of like Susan and Peter contrasted with Lucy and Edmund I think is, is per, he purposely puts that there. I mean, I guess we can talk spoilers now if you're listening to this, but like at the end of the story, Aslan says that like Susan and Peter will, this was their last time in Narnia and, and they won't come back, but Lucy and Edmund will. Um, and I don't think that's a punishment. It's just, he says like, you've, you've grown past something and they never really explain why, but I think that's a hint as to what it is like Lucy and Edmund, wanting to do their exploring with their bare feet and Susan and Peter saying, no, that isn't sensible might be, I think what they're suggesting is just like Susan and Edmund start growing past the point that they would believe in magical things. They, they're, they're that childhood wonder starts to go away. And so things like this, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I also think it's neat, like jumping into the, just the next chapter, like they both are, a lot more mature and analytical whereas Edmund and Lucy are like sort of flippant as and just like living their life I guess um like they figure out that they the the place that they are is the island of what once was the peninsula that held their castle of Caraparabao um they figure that out Peter is the one that figures that out when they find like some of their old chess pieces and the layout of the castle, like the castle wall and where the well is, as well as the fact that they planted an apple orchard, apple orchard right before they left. And Peter figures all of that out. And during that exchange, Edmund is like, wait, but how is this actually a thing the entire time? Yeah, I wonder if that's like a, a warning to people like me. Kind of going back to the conversation we had at the beginning when I was like, here's what this all is a metaphor for. And, and you were like, or maybe it's just a children's story. Like, I wonder if that's a, a a thing. Like Narnia will actually, the world of Narnia will work better if you don't 
overanalyze everything and, and look at it all. Um, you know, uh, I actually, along those lines, the beginning of chapter two, I, I noticed that Lucy is usually the most likely, uh, of the four of them to follow her feelings before what is like logical or sensible, they would say in their British vernacular. Um, she says, um, they, they first see the castle and she says, wow, this gives me a queer feeling. Um, and they're like, what? And she, she just usually reacts to her feelings on things, which we'll see later in the story is actually an important, um, plot point later. Uh, but anyways, that they, they set that up here at the beginning, that she's a little more in tune as, as kids are sometimes, I think, um, they feel something and they react to that. Uh, and, yeah, that's that seems to be as we create these four characters, something to to look at in there. I love their British vernacular. I just opened up to a page, and the first thing that I read was, "Well, I'm jiggered," which is just so funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I love it all too. It sometimes it gets a little bit confusing, though. I think for American people, like the fact that, like in Britain, they refer to a flashlight as a torch. Like that's what they're called even today. Like they don't call them flashlights; they call them torches. Um, and so sometimes, I like I remember reading this for the first time and being like, "What? What? What?" Because they use the word torch both to refer to like a piece of wood that's lit on fire and an actual battery powered. Um, flashlight is also called a torch and so there's like things like that that americans sometimes um are a little bit behind on but yeah with the use of the torch in this it is when they open their chamber door to the like not necessarily it's like the treasure room that has all of the treasures and gold and stuff that they had yeah um and the thing that they decide is the most important that they need to get before the f- torch flashlight dies is the gifts that they were given from Father Christmas in the first book. Yeah, I think that's one of the, I, I made a note of that, that. That's one of the f- the few things that I think audiences need to know ahead of time is that little um, interaction they had with Father Christmas from the line, which in the wardrobe. So we're going to talk about that in our like pre-show orientation and stuff. Um because they each get these um, gifts. Well, Edmund doesn't have one, right? Because um, he was not there when that happened. But uh, they seem to have these like magical powers to, well, they do have magical powers to them, particularly Lucy's um, cordial of healing potion. Um, uh, but then Susan has her bow and arrow and and Peter has his sword and shield that seem to, I don't know that those, I, that, I can't, I'm not fully, I don't know yet if they imply that they have like magical powers to them or I don't know, but they, they tend to do well when they use those weapons, they tend to be quite accurate. Um, and whoever uses them is usually successful. Um, but I don't know that they ever say they have magical powers. Do you, do you remember that from the other book or anything? I don't think they say that they do. But they're like, I don't, I don't, I don't exactly remember. But I do know that, like the the Peter's first interaction with his sword, sounds a lot more like, like an adult and like a like a king, and a lot less like, I am a little boy and this is a plaything. 
I, I think it's not necessarily magic, but they understand that they're like for Su- for Susan and Peter, it's literal weapons of war. And for Lucy, it is the choice of someone's life or death that they are carrying with them. And like that maturity, like endows their like childishness with then magic. Yeah, I, and again, maybe this is me overthinking it, but I think you were kind of heading that direction too, is um, Lucy's magic cordial would stress me out if I had that. Do you know what I mean? Like having the power to save someone's life and having to decide, hmm, do I use it here or do I save it for something that might be more important later? Do you know what I mean? And having that decision would like the guilt of that would just destroy me. But obviously Lucy doesn't seem to have any of those issues, but I do wonder like in this story, like when she uses it versus when she doesn't use it. And it's like, why, why don't you save this person? Or why don't you do this? Um, and she's like, I'm going to regrow Reaper Cheap's tail. I'm like, okay, cool. Are you worried about like, is this a never ending vial? Like, can it run out? Can it not? Anyways, but that was my adult brain being like, whoa, that's a really, there's a lot of responsibility with that particular gift as most gifts are, especially if you're looking at gifts, not as like literal things, but our different talents and gifts that we have, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with those. And sometimes that like paralyzes us when we're older, but when you're a kid, sometimes you don't realize that and you are in a sense able to use it more freely because you're not overthinking it. And so, you know, kids who like dancing, dance, kids who like singing, sing, like, and they're not concerned about like, am I doing it right? Am I doing it how it should be? And, um, I don't know. I think that there's an interesting parallel there. There is one final point to this chapter that will probably be our jumping off point for the next episode. Um, but in the gifts, there was one thing that is missing and that is Susan's magic horn. That is every time you or any time you blow that horn, help will come in some way. Yeah. And it is not in their secret chamber. Yeah, no, I guess she says that she, it must have fallen off her horse or something when she rode away that last time in in Narnia. Um, And yeah, we see it show up later. but kind of going back to that, that we talked about earlier about being pulled in when somebody needs you is kind of the, the overarching uh, metaphor, I think of, of this particular story. Uh, And then once they stop needing you, then you don't anymore. So um, a couple of things that I have underlined, um, They just talk about something interesting. I think we could use as we make a play out of it is um, there's this section where they're talking about um, Peter's talking about how he figured out that, Oh, we're in care Paravel. And he talks about some of their memories and he talks about when they planted the orchard and he says, the greatest of all the wood people, Pomona herself came to put good spells on it. And I was like, cool. Like we should put Pomona in when they, make the forest skull come alive again. It's like, we should make somebody Pomona, like just little ideas like that. Um, Because Narnia is weird in the sense that like it mixes like Greek mythology, like characters from Greek mythology 
and like other things mixed with like father Christmas and like all of these, like what it's like who there's fawns and, and satyrs and centaurs, but then there's also like, not like all these things that kind of come from different like traditions and, and, and myth mythology that like he like mixes different mythologies together to create the world of Narnia, um, which is actually the beef that J.R.R. Tolkien had with them. They were really good friends. Um, but he famously said he doesn't really love the Narnia books <laughs> um, because of that. He said he didn't really take the time to create a specific world, which is what J.R.R. Tolkien is all about. He's all about like world creating. And he spends so much time creating like a specific world with, with a specific language and all of this, whereas Narnia is kind of very nonspecific and has um, all these different mythological traditions all just kind of mixed into the same place, um, which Tyrell uh, Tolkien says he doesn't really love that. It makes it a less satisfying reading experience for him. But I think C.S. Lewis was just like you said, I was just writing a children's book. So like, <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, so I think we should put a Pomona in. Uh, yeah, interesting that Susan doesn't want to, I think it's another hint to her and why she doesn't come back to Narnia after this when they discover when Lucy's like, Hey, if this is care Paravel, then there'd be a door back there. And they're like, cool. It's covered with Ivy. Let's get that down. And Susan's like, I'd rather not do that because then it'll be scary in the night. So why don't we just wait till morning to do that? And the rest of them are like, sorry, we outvote you. Um, Susan's really interesting, especially if you think about her in the context of the entire seven book series and like, doesn't she like at the end, like she doesn't come back at the end, like they bring them back in the, the last book or something in the last battle. And like, Susan's not there. It's like, she like moved on, got married and she like doesn't care anymore. Um, right. Something like that. Um, but uh, so we, we start to see some of those interesting character things come out. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh this is again probably um uh an adult overthinking things too much but um this whole idea that time like is moving at a different pace in narnia than it is in england is so cool to think about um and and different plan especially ones like scientists discovered the concept of like time is distance, you know what I mean? Like light years and stuff that time, like we have this whole concept of time that is really a, a concept of distance in a sense. And so like things in other universes that, I mean, obviously you just look up at night at the stars, there's so many other things out there in the world, in the universe and outside of our universe and stuff. But like, I don't know. It just makes it a little bit more of like less of a magical thing that like, yeah, things work at different paces and different times. Like it doesn't seem like such a fantastical idea when you think about that and what we've learned about like time and space. Um, and uh, I don't know. I don't know where to go about that, but like, it's kind of cool. The possibilities that there are worlds that are operating at a different speed even just the concept of speed might be just like an earth thing. I don't know. I'm like, cool. I see the possibility for that. That's really nifty. I don't know that like a wardrobe is going to like take us to those worlds. Obviously not, but like, 
um maybe a rocket ship might one day who knows um by the way i always said um when i was teaching in the old hillcrest building in in my old classroom um there's kind of a on the picture the old picture wall um there's like a panel off to the like right if you're looking at it by where the light switch was to turn on that light um that looks like it's like a doorway but that was like covered in and uh, do you know what i'm talking about there's like the a door frame type thing there um i always said like oh that's a when i would tell theater two kids when they came in um like that's that's the por portal to narnia I always made that joke, but now I won't make that joke anymore. Now we're doing Narnia, but not there. You should just put a sign over one of the auditorium doors that says Portal to Narnia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think we're good with, with this episode. Yeah, do you have anything else? Nope, I think that's all. Okay, cool. Well, come back next time, y'all, and we'll we'll move forward into talking about uh, Prince Caspian enters the story next time, and we kind of see this. Uh, main protagonist and what his history is so yeah 